Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at FT.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the place where you get your essential science top up. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm Penny Sarche, news editor. Joining us in the pod today are New Scientist journalists Jacob Aaron and Clara Wilson. Jacob is Deputy News Editor and Claire is Reporter in the News Desk. Hello. Hello. On this week's show, we discuss whether planting a trillion trees is a help or hindrance in the fight against climate change. And we have an extraordinary story about a brain scanning technique that lets us read people's minds when they're on the border between life and death. We've also got a sci-fi alert that I'm really excited about, about, about black holes. But first, the biggest story in the world right now is the spread of coronavirus. Penny, you're going to update us and then we're going to attempt to answer some of the questions that people have been sending in. Yeah, so um, as of this morning, the 27th of February, um, we're now at about 82,000 cases worldwide. Um, Most of those still in China, but there has been a real spread throughout the world this week. So over 40 countries have had cases now. Um, Most significantly, the outbreak in South Korea has got really large. Um, That's getting on for 1,600 cases. And this week, a lot of Europe has been looking towards Italy, where um, at the moment there's 450 cases. So that's, that's a major outbreak beginning there in Italy. Likewise, there's also been a big outbreak in Iran, um, and that seems to be spreading around the Middle East. And Japan still has quite high numbers too. So it's a proper pandemic now. Well, so it is, but the WHO, the World Health Organization, aren't calling it one. But why not? So essentially, um, there isn't really actually a set definition of a pandemic. Uh, most people sort of take it to mean when there's outbreaks and epidemics of an infection in multiple places around the world. But it turns out that the WHO doesn't really have specific criteria, at least not for this kind of virus. So they, they used to have a scale that they used for flu pandemics. So this isn't flu. But when they last declared a flu pandemic, which was uh, swine flu back in 2009, there was a bit of an issue there because swine flu, although it was a pandemic, it did spread around the world on quite a large scale. It was actually quite a mild virus. And so governments all over the world were putting into place very expensive emergency plans. And, And to some extent, there's a reluctance to push people into doing super huge emergency actions before we actually know that that's needed. So does the 
WHO not use the term pandemic anymore? So they don't really seem to have these criteria, but they're still reserving the right to use it. Um, they're just not doing it yet or hadn't yet as of this morning on the 27th. Um, one reason that they seem to or have said um, that they're kind of reluctant to use the term too soon is that they're worried that countries will sort of suddenly give up on containment and start moving into mitigation. So these are two different ways of, of trying to tackle an infection. And that isn't a good idea yet containment's still important. Well, can't they do both? Yeah, so there's a difference between containment and mitigation. Containment is where, um, especially when an outbreak is just beginning or quite small, you track everyone who has it, everyone they've come into contact with, put them in quarantine, and you can really stop it spreading that way. And that's worked in lots of places throughout China, actually. Whereas mitigation is more like what we've seen in Wuhan, where you shut down the whole city, um, it's, it's freely spreading in the community, and really what you're doing is you're making sure that um, people stay home, you prioritise hospitals for the people who are most severely affected. It's that kind of further stage once the cat's out of the bag. But the worry, especially because there isn't really a containment phase when we deal with flu, is that if we start talking about pandemic, um, is that countries worldwide will just shift to mitigation and containment still has a really important role to play. So like in the UK, we really don't have that many cases yet. So containment can really slow down, stop us from getting towards that kind of epidemic phase. And the more we can slow down the virus, um, the better, because we won't overwhelm healthcare facilities, we'll have more time to develop treatments and that kind of thing. And we can prepare for when it does get to yeah, the mitigation Yeah, it gives us more state. time. Absolutely, right. yeah. OK, so we've been asking followers of at New Scientist Pod what they most want to know about the coronavirus this week. Um, first up was a very obvious one. What are the dangers of catching it? We're only just starting to get detailed data from the cases in China and it looks like maybe 80% of cases are relatively mild. Um, the majority of deaths so far seem to happen in people who are over 60 and we also think that having a pre-existing chronic inflammatory condition, something like heart disease, is likely to be one of the factors that makes it more deadly. So earlier this week the WHO said the death rate has been about 3% in Wuhan and more like 0.7% elsewhere in China. So it's a bit unclear at this point but with death rates if they really are something like 0.7% the personal risk unless you're a particularly vulnerable person is actually quite low the bigger risk is if you go around and spread it to lots of people and hit a few vulnerable people on the way and then similarly we still don't really know what the situation is with children but they seem to appear uh, to appear largely not to be affected we think um, but again it's still a little bit unclear at this point okay but I, I feel slightly reassured more reassured now than I did before yeah I, I, for most of us it's going to be more about sort of civic duty like do the right thing for your community stay home if you feel sick don't spread it to lots of people yeah. um, so it's it's not about it for most people it's not about immediate personal danger. My biggest worry at the moment is about the logistics of if I do get it and I'm going to need to self-quarantine for two weeks, how am I going to do that in my quite small London flat with two small children? Yeah. You know, I don't want to give it to, to my parents, um, so I definitely do want to stay at home, but it, it doesn't seem entirely practical for everyone to, to stay at home. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's kind of what uh, everyone's having to sort of get their head around at the moment, businesses and, and the government. Um, I think some of that advice we've been seeing about, you know, how to contain yourself in your bedroom and not see the rest of your family seems a little bit unreasonable. Mm. Obviously, parents are still going to be 
<laughs> dealing with their kids on a day-to-day basis. What I would really say is it's probably important to stay away from people who would be at higher risk, so definitely people who are older or people who have pre-existing conditions. And um, it just makes sense uh, not to go to work if if you think you have the virus and to stay away from public transport. But realistically, in your own home, you're, you're going to be mixing around with the people you live with. OK, uh, the next question we've had a lot is... Is it likely that the disease will die out naturally? Yeah, so at this point, it really doesn't look like it's going to fizzle out now. It's spread quite far. It's really difficult to say at any point what's going to happen, but um, it's really um, one of the likely scenarios is that it does seem like it's going to spread worldwide um, to the degree that at some point, most of us will have encountered it. So that seems far more likely than it's just suddenly going to kind of churn itself out now that there's so many cases. Once it has sort of travelled the globe, we'll start getting some population immunity to it because a certain number of people will have encountered it and recovered. And But the worry, of course, is that before that happens, um, more vulnerable people, some will, there will be some deaths in those communities. Isn't that what happened after 1918, that the, the big flu that went through with the world then... Some people who, was, who survived it, went through, still had an immunity years later for, for subsequent um, outbreaks. Yeah, and if you remember um, with uh, swine flu back in 2009, uh, some people of a certain age had encountered a very similar strain when they were children. Um, so my parents' generation were far less affected. Um, I came down with it. Mm. Um, and so um, the interesting thing about flu, though, is that even though flu mutates into these different strains and, and some are quite hard to deal with and, and, and worse than others... Most of us, by the time we're adults, have encountered a flu or multiple strains of flu. So um, we all have some kind of immunity to it. Whereas this coronavirus, um, you know, most of us have no immunity to it at all. So that's why it's a different situation there. OK, um, another question we've had. Uh, these are kind of multiple questions. If we might all get it, which, as you've said, we might all get it. Should we prepare for that? And can we use drugs or vaccines to bring it under control? Yeah, so um, governments at this point are obviously having a real think about their messaging and and, um, I would say panicking is never a good idea. Um, But governments are kind of uh, looking hard at their pandemic preparedness uh, procedures and that kind of thing. Um, So I wouldn't really want to advise on, on local information there. But in terms of drugs and vaccines... There, there are quite a few exciting trials going on. So um, there are some existing drugs um, that are used to treat other viruses that are already being tested in, in Wuhan and China. The hope is that some of those um, might block the virus and, and that could be really useful for treating people who develop severe COVID-19 disease and stop them from sort of getting pneumonia and, and dying. So uh, fingers crossed for that. The vaccine work is really important. Uh, there's about, um, I think there's at least four efforts to develop vaccines going on, but that will take months, so long to, de- to develop and test. So that's a longer term strategy of if we do get to this point where it's like flu and, and it's worldwide, there will still be people who are more vulnerable than others. And so like we give um, the flu shot every year to people who are pregnant or older or asthmatic, um, having something like a vaccine then would be really useful to, to slow the spread and protect the people who are most vulnerable that's our sci-fi alert so what is it this week this one is really blowing my mind it's the finding that the black hole at the center of our galaxy may have contra- <laughs> i just laugh because jacob's like skeptically already <laughs> looked at me. it's the finding that the black hole at the center of our galaxy may may have contributed to the origin of life so As everyone knows, I'm sure everyone knows, black holes are objects of intense gravity that suck objects into them. 
And as planets and stars get sucked in, they form a swirling mass of stuff crashing into each other called the accretion disk. And the violence of this swirling mass of stuff, this kind of plug hole of stuff swirling around, uh, causes high-energy X-rays to fly out and spew out into the galaxy. Now, a team at Peking University in China has modelled what they think might happen to these X-rays. And it turns out that they bash into other molecules in space. And this sets up a sort of chain reaction of chemical reactions. And it kicks off a sort of cascade of electrons getting knocked off one molecule and, and, and so on. These reactions can produce larger and larger molecules, eventually resulting in the complex compounds that are required for life to evolve. So ultimately, the researchers speculate that after billions of years, the energy from a supermassive black hole could become part of life. So the black hole at the centre of our galaxy is called Sagittarius A star, and it's about 26,000 light years away. And it's currently quiet, but when the black hole was more active, the X-rays would have reached to where we are. So the planet wasn't there then when it was more active, but there was a swirling mass of stuff that would become Earth. So the idea is, very outlandish idea, is that the black hole at the centre of our galaxy could somehow have prepared the local environment for the origin of life. So where's the sci-fi? Yeah, where is the sci-fi? Well, black holes feature in so much sci-fi, but it's all about going into them. It's all about sort of getting sucked into them, and usually you find a wormhole and you turn up somewhere else in the galaxy or somewhere else. Um, and actually, there's not many uses of um, black holes as a source of life itself. So this is a call out to any writers, sci-fi writers listening. This is a, a fantastic new idea for you to use black holes as an origin of life. So th there is a related idea called panspermia, which is the idea that life on Earth began from, you know, it, it got dragged in on asteroids or something from other parts of the galaxy. Isaac Asimov had this in some of his short stories. And there's one episode of Doctor Who, one of the old Doctor Who's, where, uh, written by Douglas Adams, actually, where uh, th there's an alien explanation for life on Earth there. But, um, yeah, as I say, this is a call to action for writers. Black holes can be more than just somewhere to go into through a wormhole, like in Interstellar. They can be a source for life. Yeah, amazing to think that they're not just an abyss. They could actually be the start. Yeah, incredible. Time out. Today's episode of New Scientist Weekly is sponsored by the Financial Times. We're living in a world of innovation and fragmentation. The FT identifies the stories that matter, like whether a green society can keep consuming and looking at which technological trends will shape the decade. Each day brings a new update on the coronavirus outbreak and the FT has been such an important source of information for me. Not only have I kept up with market trends, but I've also read other fascinating articles like coronavirus and the etiquette of working from home. Yeah, the FT covers such a huge range of issues. One interesting but hugely concerning new article I read looks at the struggle of Antarctic penguins and what their plight tells us about climate change and the future of our planet. Keep up to date with the FT to find out more. The Financial Times is your trusted guide to the new normal. Join the debate at FT.com. Next, we have a story about a doctor who is using brain scanning to try to read the minds of patients who are unable to communicate. Claire. Yes, this uh, sounded incredible to me, but there is a doctor in Canada called Adrian Owen who is using a brain scanning technique to communicate with people who are in intensive care. They've typically had a very serious head injury. They are completely unable to move, uh, talk, communicate in any way. But if they are aware and can hear what people are saying to them, he can allow them to communicate by scanning their brains and asking them to 
have certain thoughts to signal yes or no. So how many people has he tried it on and, and what has he been asking them? So he, this is uh, unpublished work, but he's already, he says he's already uh, used it to try to communicate with about 20 people uh, who are in this state. And now he's being a bit cagey about whether he has put the, uh, the million dollar question to them about whether they would like to continue on life support. But he has said that this, this work is ongoing. So in these sort of cases where um, someone's recently had a severe brain injury, um, they can't talk, the doctor gives a prognosis like, I, I guess they're saying something like, you know, if they do make it, they won't be able to walk, they won't be able to talk, they won't be able to all the they, rest they of might, it. Uh, Even if they survive, yeah. they won't be able to move, they won't be able to eat, they might not be able to communicate in any way. So, so how often then do, do families choose to withdraw ventilators or life support? Um, it's quite hard to know exact numbers, but it's something like uh, about uh, 40% of people in this very dire situation do end up having their ventilator turned off and they are allowed to just die. And in the majority of those cases, the, the families have decided, yes, come on, let's let's stop now because they just wouldn't be happy. So what if we could actually ask the person themselves and then the families wouldn't have to be just trying to guess about what their relative would have wanted. So this is fMRI brain scanning. Can you tell us how you can use that to read someone's mind? <laughs> Good question. So this allows you to see what parts of the brain are becoming active. And when you look at the, look at this on a on a live scan. You can literally see some parts of the brain look more illuminated. So doctors can say to people, "Can you please uh, imagine that you are doing something very physically active, like playing tennis? If you want to signal to us, yes." And uh, somebody who's completely motionless, unable to talk, if they can hear and understand what the doctors are saying, and they can control their thoughts in such a way, then they can do that. And, and doctors have actually been able to have quite long yes or no conversations with people who are in this state about what their wishes are. So they're testing to see if it works. And it reminds me of, uh, I, I've met people who have locked in syndrome. So that's di very different because they're fully conscious inside. They just are paralysed. But for years, doctors assumed and the family of people who are locked in assumed that these people had an awful life and they would want to die. But when they started finding out a way of communicating with people who are locked in, the majority of people who are locked in actually have sort of found a contentedness in their life and certainly don't want to die. Um, they might want the telly changed channel that it's on or they want something else. But they're, they're, they turn out to be remarkably sort of flexible in, how, in, their, in their life. Um, we have no idea what it's going to be like when you've got a, a much more serious injury and you're in this the prognosis is much worse than in locked in. But it's going to be fascinating to be able to ask them and, and find out more about what, what's happening in their mind. Well, yes, as you say, we actually can't make assumptions about what their wishes might be. That, that's why people do want to actually put the question to the people concerned and not just leave it to families making uh, assumptions on their behalf. And it's just going to be, just to start getting speculative now, um, it's just going to be fraught with problems, isn't it? Because first of all, you have to be sure that the person can understand you. And then, you know, do they, supposing you are get to a point where you discuss whether you're going to withdraw life support from someone, they might be in a bad mood that day when you ask them. So do you have to ask them over a week, a period of, of a week or a month? Or, you know, do they get three chances and then? Yes, these are 
very good points. And I, I don't think the doctors uh, and the team looking into this are being blasé about it at all. And they've told me that they're um, having extensive talks with um, ethicists and uh, legal experts to try to work out you know, how do you establish whether or not somebody has that legal mental capacity to make these life or death decisions? Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It certainly wouldn't be a simple case of ask somebody once. Um, it's much more complex than that. It's so interesting because we talk a lot about um, informed consent and making sure that someone knows what they're agreeing to and, and that they fully understand and that they're in the right state to make a decision. And it's so hard to imagine how you could do that just by asking someone repeatedly to imagine playing tennis. Mm. Um, but it, what really interests me as a sort of um, hypothetical or I guess philosophical question is, it's really understandable, I guess, that families and doctors often try, they make the compassionate choice or, or they make a really difficult decision that they think their uh, relative would want. But you do have to wonder if the patient is actually able to communicate, if they might actually say a different thing, like, no, <laughs> leave me plugged in, let's see what happens. Yeah, psychologists call this going from the armchair to the wheelchair. Mm. And instead of just thinking of how you would feel if you were in that situation, try and think how they feel in that situation. And once you start turning it around like that, you, you, you get a very different sense of what the patient might actually want. And if you can ask them, you can get direct information from them. Fascinating. For life form of the week, we've got a seemingly impossible animal. It's a beast that has no mitochondria and can exist without oxygen. Mitochondria are the organelles in all our cells that basically burn oxygen and sugar to make the fuel that all our cells use. That fuel's called ATP. So it's really hard to understand how you can exist without mitochondria. So what's the thing? The thing is a, basically a blob. It's a parasite that's related to jellyfish. It's called Heniguia salmonicola. It's a parasite that infects salmon. Um, we'll tweet a pic of it, but um, just be warned it's not much to look at and that one of the pics is quite horrible. Hang on, should we be that impressed that um, a little blob doesn't need oxygen? Well, there are animals that can do without oxygen for extended periods and sometimes even years in suspended animation. But this thing is unique because it goes through its entire life cycle without oxygen. So it lives in the flesh of salmon. It's harmless to us, but fish farmers don't like it because it leaves these nasty white blobs in the salmon flesh. Um, in its life cycle, we think it lives in a worm before it infects the salmon, but at no point does it have the ability to use oxygen. So it sounds like a bit of a risky move if it's lost its mitochondria. Shouldn't it have kept on to a few just in case? Yeah, it, you might think so, but it seems like it's an evolutionary case of use it or lose it. So it's like uh, fish in caves uh, lose their eyes, become blind, because they just don't need them, so it's, you might as well get rid of them. And it's like some orchids, right, Penny? Yeah, so, uh, some parasitic orchids don't photosynthesise because they don't need to. Yeah, so, so these jellyfish blobs don't need mitochondria, so over evolutionary time they've got rid of them. So in a way you can see this almost as the platonic form of a parasite. It's a very pure form that doesn't take food from its host to make the energy compounds it needs. It takes the energy compound directly. It's like plugging into the host. It's like an electric, <laughs> it's like getting electric current straight from it. It's pure parasite. It's more like a virus in a way, and getting rid of some of the functions it doesn't need. Sounds pretty horrible, really. Why, why do you want to celebrate it? <laughs> I, I like celebrating all horrible things. Um, no, I like celebrating things like this because it's a beautiful illustration of the wonder of evolution, the diversity of life, and how the natural world's still full of surprises. Yeah, you wonder how many more there are out there. Yeah. Will trees save the world? That's the proposal 
that we can plant a trillion extra trees to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and stabilise the climate. We think there are about three trillion trees on the planet at the moment, but there used to be much more, and getting them back might be a good way of getting out of the mess we're in. But is that right, Jacob? Well, the basic idea is sound. As you say, there's lots of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we need to get rid of, and trees have evolved to do just that. But as more and more people have come out in favour of tree planting, including uh, the US President Donald Trump and uh, various oil firms, I've been wondering whether it really is the solution that we need. Yeah, it's weird. Suddenly we all love trees. Um, It's not a new idea. We knew about trees before. Exactly. You know, as we've been talking about climate change, people have been working on technology that could suck carbon out of the atmosphere. The idea that we want a technological solution to to climate change has been quite popular. But that seems to have changed recently, perhaps as we realise, you know, we really need to be taking action soon. And these carbon sucking technologies just aren't ready. Meanwhile, trees are right there waiting for us to to start planting. So it it just seems like a, a great thing to do. Why has there been such pushback about it? So there are a few problems with the idea of just planting trillions of trees. There there was a, a big paper last year that came out saying, essentially, if we planted about a billion hectares of trees, it would uh, be able to clean up most of uh, humanity's carbon emissions. But there was a lot of pushback against that paper. Scientists came out saying, we don't think these figures are right. We don't think trees can be as effective as this. Yeah, so there has been incredible opposition But it just still seems to make sense that we might as well plant as many trees as we can to help us get over this problem. I think the key thing to remember here is that trees aren't just a technology that we can deploy anywhere. They're living organisms, and so we need to be aware of biodiversity. If we just planted the same species of tree everywhere, that would cause massive problems that would potentially wipe out other species. So we really need to think about what we're planting and where we're planting it. Uh, Is it possible to um, find a way to find the right places, the right species, and and then also to kind of make sure that they're not going to be cut down and will remain sinks of carbon? That's a big issue. Obviously, there's no point planting trees if they then get cut down and burnt and release carbon and air pollution. So we need to find places where we can plant them. They can be left alone. Uh, You know, the local people in the area aren't going to be wanting to to cut them down and and use them for for firewood. But my biggest worry is that because we've all seemingly decided that trees are the solution, we're maybe going to forget that actually to tackle climate change, we need to completely change our entire lives. Transport needs to change. Industry needs to change. We can't just plant a bunch of trees and, and go on as we have been. Yeah, I totally I totally get that. But we're not changing anything about industry. We're not changing. We're not bringing emissions down. Uh, we're, not, we're not doing these things. So I just think we to buy us some time... And I'm not, you know, I understand why people don't like it because they think it gives us a ticket to carry on flying and burning uh, fossil fuels. But until we really get our act together, why don't we just plant trees where we can? And like, since I've been learning about this, I've been seeing spots everywhere. If you walk around, you think you could plant trees there and it would, the place would look nicer, you know. And we just need to do this. I, I was speaking to Christiana Figueres about this and she led the Paris Climate Accord. Um, she's really behind the idea. And, and and she's, of course, not suggesting that we should carry on burning fossil fuels. So I, I just really want it to be part of the thing we do. I, th- I think you're right. Absolutely. Let's plant the trees, but let's not think that that is the only solution in, in the same way that you might think, oh, well, I've stopped using plastic bags. Job done. There's a lot more that needs to be done. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you'd like to subscribe, and we'd love it if you did, 
there is a special offer for podcast listeners only. Get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yes, just enter POD20 at checkout on the website to get your subscription discount. And do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. Email us at podcasts at newscientist.com and let us know your thoughts. New episodes go live each Friday. If you enjoy our show, please do tell your friends all about it. You can subscribe at all the usual places you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.